4: It was the
6: most important railway journey made in the 20th century, unquestionably. And that's why it's exciting.
2: That was Catherine Meridale talking to us about Lenin's famous train journey to Russia in 1917.
7: They suddenly realised to their horror that this glorious revolution that initially embraced the principles of the French Revolution of equality, liberty and fraternity was turning into this hideous, brutal, dictatorial
2: despotism. And that was Helen Rappaport describing the stories of foreigners caught up in the Russian Revolution.
5: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello,
2: and welcome to our first podcast of October 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This week's episode is dedicated to 1917, the year of two revolutions in Russia whose centenary will be marked in the next few months. First of all, we spoke to Catherine Meridale, historian and author of a new book called Lenin on the Train, which describes a Russian revolutionary's famous journey from exile in Switzerland to Petrograd in the spring of 1917. Putting the questions to Catherine was our books editor, Matt Elton. When we start your
3: book, where is Lenin and why, why was he there? At the beginning of the story, Lenin yes. is in
6: Zurich. And he's in Zurich because he really can't almost be anywhere else in Europe. He's in exile from the Russian Empire because he's a revolutionary and he has two choices, he either leaves Russia or he's in prison because he's been convicted by the Tsarist courts. And he chooses to live in Switzerland because that's a neutral country. At the outbreak of the war, Lenin and his wife and a number of his friends were living in the Austro-Hungarian Empire on the border of what's now Poland, in a little town. And as soon as the war broke out, the gendarmes came round, because Lenin is a Russian, so he's an enemy. And they came round and they searched the house, and they found a browning pistol behind some books in his house, and that was it. He was arrested, he was thrown into jail, and he was only pulled out of jail by a great many people pulling strings. And After that, he had to leave the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So that's why he's in Zurich. Actually, he liked Switzerland. Most revolutionaries were a bit iffy about Switzerland because they thought it was bourgeois. Trotsky hated it. He said the only thing the Swiss ever talk about is, is the shortage of potatoes. But Lenin liked it because it suited his sense of what's decent and what's proper. The libraries were great, the trains ran on time, the buses were clean. He had a little room in a street in Zurich and he could walk to the library in five minutes. I've done the same walk. And, and there he was. You know, he could just write his stuff. Everything was exactly the way he wanted it. And he was in the Swiss labour movement too, trying to organise a very, very tiny party into another split, because Lenin liked splitting parties. Um, so it was good for him. Did and he liked mountain walking too.
3: Hmm. Did, he, did he feel out of it though? Did he, did he worry that things were going on without him? Um, after the war broke out?
6: In Russia, yes. Um, he couldn't get Russian news very easily because, of course, Russia and Switzerland were separated by the front line and by the hostile temp- territory of both the Austro-Hungarian and the German empires. And the only way he could get news was by buying the Zurka Post or some Swiss newspaper or other. And the, the Russian news would be two or three days old. And he used to fume about that. He used to walk down to the lake, buy the paper and spit over it, but he was spitting over two-day-old news, which was rather frustrating. It still let him write rude things about what's happening in Russia, of course he was always going to do that, but he was cut off. All he could do was try and organise the European Socialist Movement, which being Lenin, naturally he did, because he wasn't going to sit around doing nothing. And so what he was trying to do was to push the European Socialist Movement further to the left during the war, in the direction of absolute hostility to the First World War, no cooperation with the war, instant peace, rather than we have to fight this war because we have to defend our countries, which was, of course, the position of the German Social Democrats, or a lot of them.
3: He seemed very concerned to kind of spread dissent and to spread divisions between the movement as a way of helping that, didn't he?
6: What he was trying to do was, his view was always, I would rather lead a party of one than be wrong. You know, I'd rather have two people with me than be with this large party of people who are just simply going to lead the revolution down a blind alley. Solzhenitsyn in his book Lenin in Zurich portrays him as this monster who is constantly saying split, 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 because it's a way of being in charge of something. It wasn't quite as simple as that. Lenin actually really, and the reason he's successful is because he deeply believes that the war is a capitalist war and that there is no peace possible all the while the bourgeoisie are in charge. And because he believes that, he goes on fighting for it and he's prepared to split and split infinitely to get that
3: outcome. Who were the people that were involved in putting together this scheme to transport him by train?
6: Well, when the Russian Revolution happened, which we have to go back to, if you like, February, March 1917. It happened in February in Russia, in March in Europe, because the Russian Empire was 13 days behind, which makes life a bit complicated. We'll call it the February Revolution just for the sake of argument. Um, But he got the news, of course, in March in Zurich. Um, He was desperate to get back to Russia and take control. Desperate, I mean, he was punching the air, he was shouting, he was telling all his friends, you've got to get me a passport, any passport, we can fake it, we can do anything. He even thought about flying back, which would have been fatal flying over the German lines and in very primitive aircraft, and how was he going to find one anyway? Um, So he was really keen to do it, but he knew that if he crossed Germany, which was the only way to get out of Switzerland, um, he would compromise himself. So for a long time, because he would be a Russian crossing the territory of Russia's enemy, and that would make him a traitor. So for a long time, he he, he didn't want to accept that option. He wanted to try anything else. And the... Only other way he could have done it would have been to go through France and Britain and take a steamer from Newcastle to Scandinavia and then go that way. But he was convinced the British would arrest him, which they probably would have done. They arrested Trotsky in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and held him. So he was right to be nervous. Um, so gradually he came round to the idea that maybe going through Germany was an, exceptional, was an acceptable option. And the people who persuaded him, there was a man called Radek, who was a very colourful character, very attractive, very interesting. Everybody liked him. Arthur Ransom, who was living in Russia at the time, was very fond of Radek. They were close friends. Women fell all over him. Uh, And he was at the time in Switzerland, and he had this idea that perhaps going back through Germany would, would be possible. And the reason Radek got there to that thought was that before 1917, there had been this incredibly colourful figure called Parvis, this revolutionary called Parvis, who came from Odessa, and who by various means, fair and foul, became a multimillionaire as a result of wartime speculation, and was working partly with the German government. And Parvis had a base in Copenhagen and used Russian revolutionaries as researchers there and had got passes for... Russians to go through Germany as part of that project. And so through Parvis, Radek had this experience that it is possible to get German cooperation without compromising yourself. Uh, Parvis is one of the big characters in the story, really. He's very, very interesting and very charismatic. An enormously fat man with a cigar, always had a blonde on one arm. When he went to uh, Zurich to, to see Lenin, he booked himself into the Boro Lac. Well, when I travelled on the same journey, I went to the Boro to look at it. But I talked in my little hotel, I said, it, what would happen if I went to the Boro Lac? said, the Boro Of course, that's where the whole of FIFA were arrested. You remember, that? that's the kind of hotel it is. It's not my sort of hotel at all. <laughs> <laughs> but it was Parvus, and he was in a suite there for weeks um, you know, trying to charm the Russian revolutionaries with his money. Uh, but he was constantly in touch with the German government about the possibility of fomenting revolution in Russia in order to pull Russia out of the war. Um, so Parvus was to some extent the impresario of this, even though Lenin didn't have any formal
3: public contact with him. Did Lenin have any qualms about getting involved in this scheme?
6: Huge qualms. Partly because he didn't want to be thought of as a traitor, and partly because he didn't want to be thought publicly to be having any contact with Parvus. Because Parvus was known to be a a character who was very ambiguous. Nobody knew whether he was a revolutionary or a traitor, a spy for Germany. And they all thought that he wasn't a pucker revolutionary for some reason or other, and they had their theories about him. Not least because he
3: was so rich. You mentioned the February Revolution there. Mm Do you think that's been overlooked in other tellings of this wider story?
6: About the train or Mm. about the
3: revolution as a whole? Both, I suppose. Well, it's interesting that people, they tend to forget it. It goes out Mm. of view
6: so often when when we think about the Russian Revolution. It's often a footnote to it. Mm. There are a couple of very good books. The book that resurrected the February Revolution was Orlando Figes' People's Tragedy. And for a while, people did start thinking about the February Revolution after that, but that was a few years ago and it's disappeared a bit. If you talk in Russia to people, they always think about October, the great October Socialist Revolution. You can't call February the great February anything, can you? <laughs> the great February liberal democratic <laughs> failed revolution. Yeah. A bit
3: difficult, so when we come to Lenin making this journey, um, What was that physically like? And who were his fellow passengers is the other question.
6: Well, uh, first of all, there were a lot of people who were very hostile. Among his friends and contacts in Switzerland, a lot of people said, don't do it. It is treason to accept German help. And back in Russia, the new liberal, democratic, bourgeois, whatever you want to call it, provisional government, had a foreign minister called Paul Milukov, who said he would arrest anybody who accepted German help going back to Russia, because that was consorting with the enemy. Uh, So there were a number of people in Switzerland who said, you cannot do this. But Lenin had also friends who were prepared to take the risk. Inessa Armand, his lover and friend who was in France at the time, but came to Switzerland to travel with him. A Georgian called Mika Tsukakaya, who who said, you tell me to come, I'll be there tomorrow, I won't even bring, bring a suitcase. And he didn't. When he went on the journey, he came with no luggage at all except probably a knife between his teeth I was thinking Skakaya like that um, obviously his wife Krupskaya Zinoviev Grigory Zinoviev who was uh, always a, a close friend of, of Lenin's um, and would have done anything to stay with Lenin he was with him in exile throughout the war period, and he had a wife, and he also had a first wife. So his second wife travelled, and so did his first wife, um, Olga Ravich, which created trouble. Radek travelled, and they needed an interpreter because the deal was the Russians were to have no contact with the Germans at all on the crossing through Germany. So they could take a normal train through Switzerland, but once they got to the border with Germany, they could not. Um, have any contact with the Germans, but they needed German guards. So they took a Swiss revolutionary called Fritz Platten, who was the go-between. They go through Switzerland on an ordinary Swiss train, leaving Zurich They're heckled and hissed, and it's quite difficult for them. They're worried, they don't know what's going to happen. They get to the border between Switzerland and Germany, and they all have to get off the train. And at this point, the saddest thing, I think, it must have been so difficult for them, because Russians, when they travel, always take their food. They know that this is something you have to do. They're very good at long distance travel, and they still are. And whenever I travel long distances in Russia, I'm always amazed by how good Russians are at this. And they would have had baskets and baskets of food, which Platon had secured for them. When they got to the border, the Swiss announced that there were customs regulations about taking food out of Switzerland and took all the food off them. So that was their first shock. Their second shock was they were searched again, so they were searched twice, and then they get across the German border, and they're made to line up, men on one side, women on the other. They're terrified. There are two German guards waiting who are going to travel with them, German military officers. This is, they don't know, are we going to be arrested? Are we going to be shot? What's going to happen? And eventually, they're simply counted aboard a single carriage, which is going to be pulled by a succession of German engines through German territory. And it's a single carriage with a number of compartments, two first-class three standard class because Lenin said we well actually it's not first class it's two second class and three third class he said we don't want luxury we can't afford it we're going to pay for our own tickets so although the Germans could have you know for the money it was costing them to do this they could have given them anything they gave them exactly what they asked for a normal carriage and near the back there was a chalk line drawn and that was the international boundary so on one side of the Russians, and on the other side of the Germans, and they may not cross that boundary. Unfortunately, there are only two lavatories in this carriage, one at the back for the two German guards, and one at the front for 34 Russians. And that is the only place the Russians may smoke, and all Russians tended to smoke. So there was always a long queue of people waiting to use the loo for the real purpose while somebody was in there having a back. So Lenin introduced some of his communist discipline. And people were given tickets. First class ticket, you're using the louvre. It's real purpose. Second class ticket, you're smoking. And you have to to leave it if somebody with the first class ticket comes to the door. It must have been the most uncomfortable journey because there was no real hot water. There was nowhere to sleep. I've done the journey, but I stayed every night in a comfortable place or I slept in a coupe to do it sitting up and with very little food and not knowing what was going to happen next. And then travelling through wartime Germany, surrounded by hostile faces, thin faces, tired people, no men because they're all at the front. Now, the Russians had been segregated from the war by being in Switzerland. They hadn't seen what the war was doing. And this is the first time they've actually been out of Switzerland and seen there are no men, there's no money, the people are starving, they're pale, they hate us. People came to the window of the carriage with pictures of newspapers with, you know, the Tsar has gone and, and heckled them. It must have been very frightening indeed. But they, they uh, sang. They sang the Marseillaise until they were told to stop because it wasn't a good idea in Germany. <laughs> um, and when they, they got to Frankfurt, a number of Germans pushed their way onto the train with beer and sausages, which was probably quite welcome. Although Radek said the beer wasn't very good. And then they went on to Berlin, and, and then onto the coast, and that was their German
3: crossing. Mm. How long did the whole journey take?
6: The whole thing took eight days. Mm. They left in the afternoon of one Monday, and they arrived nearly at midnight on a Monday a week later.
3: And what sort of, you've done the journey. Yes. And what was that like?
6: It was wonderful. Mm. It was so exciting. Yeah. It was interesting in all sorts of ways. I mean, it's interesting that European trains are so much better than British ones, and that you could book every single journey from my desk and print every single ticket, and then the train would be there and exactly where it said it was going to be and exactly on time. And presumably that was the same with Lenin. He probably had the benefit of wartime European trains. But the, the other thing that was interesting was, on the one hand, people said they had no idea about Lenin. I would, I, everywhere I went, I asked. And for instance, in, in Malmo in Switzerland, Lenin and his party had dinner. They were only in the Savoy Hotel in Malmö for about 45 minutes. But it was a big dinner and it was a big occasion and there's a brass plaque in the hotel commemorating that. And the woman on reception was from Moscow. And I said to her, can you show me the brass plaque commemorating when Lenin was here? And she said, John Lenin? And I had to push her to, oh, you know, Vladimir Ilyich. And she didn't really remember Lenin at all because the, the new generation in Russia... He's not an important figure for them. And she couldn't believe anybody wanted to talk about him. So on the one hand, he's forgotten. And on the other hand, he's everywhere. You know, Berlin, we stayed in Berlin. There it is, you know, the Trabi's on the street, East Berlin, West Berlin, that's all down to Lenin. The shape of Finland now bears the scars of wars. Germany bears the scars of wars that were largely started because of the creation of the Soviet Union and National Socialism to oppose it. Uh, So Lenin is everywhere and yet he's nowhere.
3: So what impact did Lenin make when he finally arrived? Well, he arrived just before midnight on Easter
6: Monday, which was very inconvenient for the local communists because they had no means of creating a, a big event because it was Easter and they weren't sure when he was going to get there. But nonetheless, the Bolsheviks were very good at organisation and they did put on something for him. They, they had a bush telegraph around the factory district. They managed to get a military band. They managed to decorate the Finland station with flowers and banners and red flags. All the sorts of things that Lenin wasn't... He didn't know what was going to happen to him. He thought maybe he was going to be arrested, hanged. He had no idea. He'd been preparing his fellow passengers for the idea that they might be arrested and that he, as a lawyer, would represent them and they were not to say anything. The usual Lenin control freak. Um, When he got off the train, he was stunned by the reception he got. Now, after eight days and nights, I would have been very tired. Lenin was so energetic. He started straight away haranguing the crowd right there in the station. He pushed his way through the Imperial waiting room, straight out into the crowd in the square outside the Finland station. Eventually they pushed him up onto an armoured vehicle that they'd got. Uh, They weren't sure what they were going to use it for, but they used it as a platform for Lenin to address the crowd, and then they drove him through the streets. And I have this picture of him sort of shouting and waving his fist into the night all the way from the Finland station to Bolshevik Party headquarters after eight days and nights on the train, without a break, without missing a beat, always giving the same message. And some people said, you know, this is a traitor, we should stick a bayonet into him. But most people were just saying, I can't believe he's really saying it. What's he saying? He's saying... We should declare peace, give in immediately, no support for the provisional government, but we've just you know, got the provisional government. This is what, what is he doing? He's mad, he's come from abroad, he doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. And then he made a speech from the mansion, that the balcony of the mansion where the Bolsheviks had their headquarters, a uh, requisition ballerina's mansion, very beautiful. He leant out of the balcony, and addressed the crowd again, at probably half past one in the morning. There was a crowd in, in April in St. Petersburg. And then he went in and told his party the same thing. And this is the famous April theses, which at the time people said he's lost his mind. Even his wife said, I'm afraid Lenin's gone a bit funny. But within three weeks, because he was determined he never gave up and he was patient and he was organised, just pushing his line at the party, he managed to persuade them to change their policy. And that became the Bolshevism that, that eventually won the day in November.
3: How, I mean, how decisive was his intervention?
6: completely decisive. If he had not come back, the Bolshevik party was preparing unity talks with the Mensheviks. And the war effort was continuing. And the idea was that through a multi-party Soviet, the workers' interests would be protected by their own representatives and the provisional government would take charge of high politics, international relations and the war. And Lenin completely blew that out of the water. He pulled the Bolsheviks away from the other socialist parties and made them into something distinctive and extreme and strange and unprecedented. A lot of people thought it wouldn't work. And it only worked really because the war went so badly. It only worked because as the war went badly and as the provisional government was shown up to be... Unable to represent the interest of the, mul- the bulk of the population and as the soviet was groping for a way through that The Bolsheviks were the only party that was uncompromised had never Done a deal with anybody had always argued for the extreme position and A lot of people supported the Bolsheviks just because they thought they were the most extreme These are the ones that talk the toughest line these have to be the right even if we don't quite know what they stand for They must be okay
3: has writing this book changed your view of Lenin, or developed it?
6: Well, I was a student in Moscow in the 80s. And I went to see Vladimir Ilyich in his mausoleum, and he was very dead. And <laughs> Vladimir Ilyich in a brown suit. And Vladimir Ilyich is everywhere around us. You know, everywhere I went, every archive I worked in, there was the bust, you know. And he's not actually the sexiest man on the planet. Uh, even Karl Marx has got a, an edge on him. That. So Lenin to me was just something like an old piece of furniture and irritating and dowdy. And of course, from some of my other work, working on the results of the Bolshevik Revolution and the oppression that followed and the terrible tragedies for people in Russia. So he wasn't a character that I warmed to. And what I wanted to do with this book was to, because One of the policies I always have with my writing is if there's something I don't understand or don't particularly like, it's time to go and look harder at it. And I wanted to see what Lenin was like at the time when he was really explosive, when he really was the fiery revolutionary and not the the marble bust, before he became dead. And I think I've done that for myself. I think I do understand why he was so powerful, why he was so charismatic. Not as a leader of people, I don't suppose... If you passed him in the street, you'd have thought, wow, that's a big leader. But a man who could operate within a party, and a man whose ideas drove him like no other person, I think, of his generation. And I can understand that now.
3: You write that all of the foreign actors who were involved in this story lost out. Mm -hmm. Um, Who suffered the most, and how long-lasting were the consequences? Well, foreign actors as
6: opposed to Russians, because I think the people who, who suffered the worst were the Russians from the Russian Revolution. And what happened to them what well, is still happening, because to some extent we're still watching the, the playing out of, of that drama. The Germans probably suffered the worst. Uh, if you think about what happened as a result of this, for one thing, Zimmermann, Arthur Zimmermann, the person who was responsible for signing the, the pieces of paper that got Lenin's train in the first place, well, he was a disaster. He was a disaster because he had. This idea of doing foreign policy through plotting and scheming and clever, you know, cunning plots. And his cunning plot before Lenin was the Zimmermann telegram to try and get Mexico into the war on the German side. And that brought in the United States. So to some extent, he lost the war for Germany even before he let Lenin through. Then he let Lenin through and created the Soviet Union indirectly. I mean, he's partly responsible for the creation of the Soviet Union. And if you think about what that meant for the future of Germany. In the very short term, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was very beneficial to Germany. Getting Russia out of the war was the only hope Germany had of not losing it in 1917, 1918. But thereafter, the consequences were catastrophic. So I think Germany probably was number one sufferer.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to the route, actually, I forgot to ask this. How hard was it for you to actually trace the route that he took?
6: The hardest bit was Sweden. Mm-hmm. Not because there aren't lots of accounts but because they're all wrong um, and what what was helpful um, was talking to somebody in the Swin- Swedish railway museum who was able to produce that they must have such a fantastic archive she was able to produce the timetable for the week Lenin went through Sweden and send it to me uh, which was really helpful because everybody else has sent Lenin up a railway line that didn't exist in 1917 wasn't built and there is even a book which sends him across the Baltic by sea which he didn't do so there, there are very few, and the Russians themselves didn't write very accurate accounts, because they were more interested in telling the story of Ilich's journey. And so Ilic was sitting here, and we watched him eat a biscuit, and that's something we have to put into our memoirs, because everything Ilich did, we have to record. So they weren't necessarily looking at the route. Uh, tracing the route is difficult in Sweden now, because the trains no longer go through the most interesting place, which is Haparanda Tornio, which is a border post... Haparanda is on the Swedish side, Tornio is on the Finnish side. And in the First World War, this was the hotspot in Europe. It was the most important entrepot for mail, for freight, for war material, and for people travelling between the Western Allies, the Entente Powers, and Russia, their ally. There was no other land route between the two. And so we reckon, uh, well, the Germans actually said that the British relied on Haparanda to win the war. Nobody knows where it is now. Um, but I went there and I worked in the archive with the staff there. They were fantastic. And they brought out all these photographs of under in the war. And it was buzzing. There were, it was like another city, but it was built of crates. Everywhere you look, there were crates of freight, war material, food. And then there were people passing through. Every politician, every diplomat had to go through this route. But there's now no rail link through there. So you have to go by bus which made it sort of uncomfortable and a little bit exciting.
3: Um, You write in the book about parallels with the situation today. Mm -hmm. What do you think those parallels are and what can we learn from studying this history?
6: Well, the thing that most strikes me is watching the great powers and particularly reading the the British documents in, in the National Archives. It is very striking that the British were thinking only of British interests in everything they did that concerned Russia. There were very few people who knew Russia very well, very few, or who actually tried to understand what was happening there. For the most part, they tried to imagine the revolution hadn't really happened. They didn't want it to have happened. And at first, they tried to cover up the news of it. So there are little jottings on memoranda from Sir George Buchanan, who's the British ambassador in St. Petersburg, saying, you know, keep this quiet. Don't let this out. Eventually, of course, they had to. Um, so they don't want the revolution to have happened. The fact that it has happened means they have to find people to deal with. But the people they want to deal with are people like them. So they don't want to believe that they have to treat Russia differently and that Russia is going to have to find a very different route forward now. And that impedes their ability to create policy that's going to work for everyone and in the end therefore they're making policy that doesn't work terribly well for them. Britain's long-term interest was clearly they wanted Russia as a trade partner after the war and by thinking only of that they weren't thinking about what Russia's problems were likely to be and how Russia might be seeing them.
3: To what extent was this then a journey that changed the world?
6: Totally (laughs) it was it was the most important railway journey made in the 20th century unquestionably. And that's why it's exciting. And because railways are so romantic, you can't have the most, most important airline journey made in the 20th century. Not quite the same, <laughs> is it? Or the most important motorbike ride. <laughs> um, but it really was. It, without it, there would have been no Soviet Union. That, I think, is unquestionable. Lenin would not have gone back. And if Lenin had not gone back, there would be no Soviet Union.
2: That was Catherine Meridale in conversation with Matt Elton. Lenin on the Train has just been published in the UK by Alan Lane. In the US, it's due to be published next spring by Metropolitan Books. And you can read more from Matt and Catherine in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which goes on sale today, the 6th of October. Also in this month's issue, we have articles on Lady Jane Grey, the Norman Conquest, Churchill and the Atom Bomb, the Aberfan Disaster and plenty more. You can get hold of our November issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside of the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer For our second interview this month, we're sticking with our Russian revolutionary theme. Historian and author Helen Rappaport has written a book entitled Caught in the Revolution, which tells the story of a number of foreign residents and visitors to the Russian city of Petrograd during this period of dramatic upheaval. I spoke to Helen a little while back to find out more. Okay, so Helen, could you give us a bit of an idea about the kind of foreign nationals who would be living in Petrograd in 1917?
7: Well, there was a very interesting mix of people living there because the predominant group of people, of course, were the Brits, because there had been a British colony in Russia from the late eighteenth century when various technical people, advisers, architects, businessmen had gone out to help sort of develop the city. So the British colony had been there of some long standing. There was also, of course, and a developing American colony which grew. Very rapidly during the war years with a lot of American businessmen and people coming in selling materials to the Russian army. There were also various diplomatic communities, particularly French nationals in the city.
2: And there are some really interesting figures in Petrograd, in the time that you, your book's written, um, who are famous perhaps for other things in Britain, people like Arthur Ransom and Emmeline Pankhurst. Is that right?
7: Well, of course, Arthur Ransom was yet to become the famous novelist of Swallows and Amazons. That, of course, came later at the time. He was just um, a hardworking, jobbing journalist. And Emmeline Pankhurst's visit, or when she swanned in rather grandly in the summer, was very uh, much more high profile.
2: Clearly Russia had been at war for three years, just just like Britain had. How much had that impacted on these nationals? Were they suffering the same privations that the people outside in the city would be?
7: Well, it's very interesting because you see throughout the previous winter of 1916 and into 1917 how more and more of the foreign nationals living in the city were struggling, perhaps not as much as the impoverished Russians on the streets. Obviously, you can't quite equate them with them, but they were all equally struggling to get hold of good quality or any quality of food to eat, particularly bread. And throughout the year of the revolution, the one shared obsession from the highest to the lowest was getting enough food particularly bread so they did share in a certain degree of privations yes
2: how much of a shock to these people was the first revolution that happened in february on the russian calendar in march in britain
7: Well, as such, the actual act of revolution was not particularly a shock because many of the foreign nationals throughout the preceding winter had predicted over and over again in letters, in journals, in discussions, in the cafes and clubs and embassies that something was going to happen, that Russia was descending into chaos, that revolution was going to come. It was simply a matter of when. The unpredictable element was how it came about. I think they were expecting a much more organized, political kind of revolutionary-led revolution but in fact when revolution came it was very much a visceral grassroots event led in fact by women protesting at the bread shortages which in itself is of course very similar to France in 1789.
2: What impact did the first revolution have on the day-to-day lives of these people?
7: Well it was incredibly catastrophically unsettling and for the whole period from February through to the Second Revolution in October, the thing people found increasingly hard to deal with, was the sense of a lack of a decisive government, of anyone really taking control. And people were fearful because there was this constant disruption, a constant uh, sense of oppression and a a lack of security in the city. People were anxious for an end to the violence that ensued, an end to the looting and the rioting. And it was a very fearful time right through until October. And then, of course, a different kind of fear ensued when people began to realise exactly what the Bolshevik takeover was going to bring in its wake.
2: And you spoke about the violence that took place um, in the February Revolution And afterwards, were these foreign nationals actually personally impacted by this?
7: Oh, God, yes. You see, you've got most of these people trying to carry on with their lives. They've got to go shopping. They've got to go to their offices. The diplomats have got to get to the Russian foreign ministry and elsewhere. These people constantly in their letters and journals describe events as they happen on the streets because they get caught up in it. That's why I gave the book that title, because they would be going on their way somewhere and suddenly they would see firing and crowds scattering and people diving into the snow. So, these people were very much there on the streets and seeing what was happening at first hand.
2: I suppose if something like this happened nowadays, you'd imagine the British nationals would all, or most of them, would leave. Did the same happen then? Did most of these foreign nationals seek to get out of Russia?
7: Well, not immediately. In fact, from the previous winter, people, some people had been going home. And once February came, of course, the British embassy, like any other embassy, were anxious about the safety of their foreign nationals. But of course, it was very difficult for people to leave once The revolution broke. There was so much dislocation, uh, difficulty getting people on ships or trains out of the city. But many people decided to hang on in there. I mean, there were a lot of people, for example, in the British colony who had vested interests in Petrograd. They'd set up businesses there. They'd made homes there. And when it came to the crunch and they really did have to leave, these people lost everything. They had to leave in virtually all they stood up in.
2: How aware were these people living in Petrograd of what was going on in the rest of Russia.
7: It it was difficult because you've got to remember, Russia is a very vast place. And even within Petrograd, it was difficult to know what might have happened a few streets away. So sometimes you might have been walking quite quietly and happily down a street where everything seems fine. And a few streets away, there's firing and killing going on. So things were very much fragmented across the city and beyond the city, people um eventually began getting reports of, of peasant anarchy and violence in the provinces where a really visceral and violent Attacks on the old Russian aristocracy and gentry were launched, their estates were burnt down, everything destroyed. So, news did filter in and equally, eventually, too, there was revolutionary activity in Moscow. So, it was quite difficult to get news because the whole of the news system, the telegraph and and the, the mail, especially, everything was disrupted by the revolutionary events.
2: After the February revolution, a few months later, we have the Bolshevik revolution in October. At what point did these foreign nationals begin to be aware of the Bolshevik presence? And did any of them predict the second revolution?
7: Well, in fact, they'd all been predicting the Bolsheviks were going to take over in July because there was almost an announcement two weeks before there was going to be a big march and demonstration and the Bolsheviks were going to take over In fact, it it all came to nothing. So it was a case of everyone sitting there wondering when the inevitable would happen. But the way I see it, when you look at October, you can barely call it a revolution. It wasn't. It was a takeover. The Bolsheviks finally, because the provisional government was so weak and because there was so much chaos and disarray, the Bolsheviks just walked in and took over. It wasn't this great big anarchic thing that you see in Eisenstein's film, October. I mean, that's all a myth.
2: Did any of the people you write about, did they encounter any of the soon-to-be-famous Bolshevik leaders, people like Lenin, Trotsky, maybe even someone like Stalin? Well,
7: Stalin was totally out the frame. He was very much the backroom boy who kept an extremely low profile. And also, when the revolution broke, he was still in exile in Siberia and had had to make his way back. The really visible presence in terms of the Bolshevik leadership was Trotsky. Lenin crept back in. And then when trouble broke out in June, July, he crept back out again because he was always one to watch his own back and get out to safety. Lenin never was there leading from the barricades. Trotsky was the poster boy, the fiery orator up there on the, you know, the soapbox haranguing people. So he was very much the visible presence in terms of the leadership. And of course, Lenin had actually been in exile in Switzerland and didn't even come back to Russia until the beginning of April 1917, where people did turn out to greet him at that Famous arrival at the Finland Station, but many Russian people, even in Petrograd, didn't really know who Lenin was. They'd heard the name. They might have read his pamphlets, but you know he was a bit of a, an elusive figure, to say the least.
2: Do you mention that some of these foreign nationals had vested interests in Russia? Did any of them try to intervene or? seek to prevent or alter the revolutions
7: no it was it was too terrifying their priority was to protect their own i mean some of them had some fairly hair-raising encounters with um, revolutionaries and demonstrators. And that in itself, you know, they had their cars hijacked from them. They had The people, the factory owners, had their factories attacked. They had to deal with this terrifying arrival of, of very belligerent Red Guards taking over their businesses. No, I don't think any of them in any way tried
2: to resist. It was too frightening. And were foreigners particular targets during this revolutionary period?
7: Well, it's interesting. Anyone who was perceived to be bourgeois, i.e. going around in a a posh hat or gloves or a stiff white wing collar uh, was perceived to be an enemy of the people, but that was basically Russians. Once foreigners announced themselves as being foreigners, they were usually left alone. And in fact, some of my eyewitnesses were so frightened about being attacked that they actually put little Union Jacks or American flags, they sewed them on their clothes so that they could be identified as foreign nationals. And the general consensus was some people who wrote about their experiences were the was that the revolutionaries usually were quite respectful and uh, decent and said you know our quarrel is not with you we're going to take your business away from you we're going to sequester all your goods but we're not going to harm you
2: did any of the people you write about have any sympathy for the communists
7: oh well there's a big division there's a very clear difference I noticed researching the story which was many of the even the people who lived there and were anticipating revolution were sympathetic to the cause of reform and feeding the people and bringing in some decent humanitarian uh, reforms and and they many of them embraced february as a, a you know a real grassroots protest movement and were quite celebratory of the fact that the revolution had finally come and this awful despotic autocracy had been toppled. But what's so interesting is that as you watch these people, if they stayed, and many of them did, as the year progresses, they become increasingly horrified and ultimately quite despairing of what this change was bringing because by the time the Bolsheviks took over, the hardliners in October, they suddenly realized to their horror that this glorious revolution that it initially embraced the principles of the French Revolution of equality, liberty, and fraternity was turning into this hideous, brutal, dictatorial despotism that if anything was worse than the
2: one it had just
7: replaced.
2: So were none of the people actually then sympathetic to the Bolsheviks after October?
7: Well, there there was a little coterie after October who, of course, retained a rosy view of this wonderful, glorious new socialist utopia. And these tended to be that little group of American fellow travellers, if you like to call them, who were John Reed, Louise Bryant, Albert Rees-Williams and Bessie Beattie. There was a quartet of them who went went around in October thinking it was the wonderful, brave new world. But it's interesting, the most of the journalists and residents who'd been there all through that revolutionary year and had witnessed so much murder and pillaging and killing and rioting were completely cynical and um, deeply disturbed by events by the end of the year. But there remained a few who'd celebrated this great new socialist utopia. But I think in the end, even John Reid, by the time he died, had become disillusioned with it.
2: Was the Bolshevik revolution the prompt for those who'd remained to start leaving?
7: Well, many started leaving after February, especially, I mean, in terms of the diplomatic communities, the things that all the ambassadors were doing, like Sir George Buchanan, was urging that residents get their wives and children home to safety. So many of the families left after February and then throughout the summer. And so it was really the hardcore of people who had a reason to stay who were still there in October. But of course, there were an awful lot of British and other foreign nationals trapped in Russia, in the provinces, especially a lot of governesses and nurses from Britain, French ones as well, who'd gone to Russia, who'd made their lives in Russia, working for Russian families out in the provinces, who were totally stranded by revolutionary events and who had actually great difficulty getting out. And in some cases, it took many years before they were able to leave Russia.
2: How did the memories of these people shape our understanding of the early Soviet Union and this revolutionary period?
7: Well, I think they shape my understanding, and I can only say it from my own point of view, having done the research now, is that the revolution was not a great, glorious thing. Far from it, it was ignominious. It was deeply destructive. And the saddest thing I, I found was seeing people going through that year wishing for an end to the violence, wishing for a return to stability, security, anything. In fact, they would have accepted any government virtually of any political persuasion, so long as they could have had peace and food to feed their children. In fact, People in Petrograd were saying, you know, we don't even care if the Germans come in, and they were in Riga and coming down towards Petrograd. We don't care if the Germans take Petrograd. There might be at last a new establishment of order in the country. That's what everyone craved. So in the end, really, revolution for most of those people was not about political feeling, political persuasion. It was about survival. It was about staying alive.
2: You mentioned that a lot of them were longing for peace, but I mean, obviously, Britain was an ally of Russia at this point. Did the British people living in Russia? I presume they might have wanted Russia to fight on. Well, of
7: course, uh, the official position very much was that they wanted to keep Russia in the war. But Russia, after three years of war and catastrophic losses, and uh, by 1917, a massive number of young conscripts defecting, just walking away from the front lines. Yes, it it was becoming increasingly difficult to keep Russia in the war. There was a lack of materials. There was a lack of money. There was a lack of will And um, I think that really worried the Allies, which is why people like Emmeline Pankhurst turned up in Petrograd in the summer to try and rally support to the Allied cause to try and keep Russia in the war. Because they all knew very well that the Bolsheviks' major objective was to pull Russia out of the war.
2: You spoke so far about some of the well-known people that many people have heard of who were living at Russia in the time. Are there any lesser-known people that particularly caught your attention while researching the book Lots and lots. I think most
7: of my favorite heroes are people probably no one will ever have heard of until they read the book, because these are people whose stories are completely lost to history or were never published or, you know, just disappeared into an archive somewhere. And I have several favorites. One of my huge favorites is a man called Leighton Rogers, who was a college graduate, an American college graduate straight out of Dartmouth College, Ivy League College, who went to Petrograd. With several other young men of his same peer group to work for the New York City Bank in Petrograd. And here are these innocent young American guys sent to war torn Petrograd who witnessed revolution. And Leighton Rogers wrote the most wonderful diaries, which have never been published, which are thankfully preserved in the Library of Congress. And similarly, I think one of my other great favorites is a man called Phil Jordan, who was the African American valet come chauffeur to the American ambassador, who wrote the most gloriously ungrammatical, idiosyncratic of the moment letters home to America from Petrograd, which I think are. are quite extraordinary in the vividness with which he captures that sense of being out there and living through history and living and seeing such momentous events
2: do you see any parallels between this period you've written about and the more recent revolutions that have happened in the 21st century
7: i think the closest parallels really have to be more much more historic than that i think the closest parallel has to be france that initial outburst of protest and anger and frustration about the bread shortages the food shortages which was expressed by women in Paris in October 1789 and prompted sparked marches and violence and riots and a a march on Versailles that is very similar to what was going on up and down the Nevsky prospect in Petrograd.
2: That was Helen Rappaport Caught in the Revolution is out now in the UK, published by Hutchinson. In the US, it will be published in February by St Martin's Press. And now it's time for the latest history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn.
0: Britain's largest Iron Age earthwork has been discovered hiding in plain sight at Skipsy Castle in Yorkshire. The man-made mound, which is 13 metres tall and 85 metres in diameter was previously believed to have been part of a Mott and Bailey castle, built following the Norman conquest of 1066. However, recent archaeological work has revealed that the monument is in fact far older. Soil excavated from its core proved to be over two and a half thousand years old. To say that the discovery of an Iron Age monument hiding in plain sight was surprising is an understatement said University of Reading archaeologist Jim Leary, who led the excavation. The supposition is that Scipsey is likely to be a burial mound. That's the only reason we know of for people in the Iron Age to raise such structures, but we have no evidence yet to prove that. There is much more work to be done at Skipsey. Over the next year, Leary's team plan to carry out further investigative excavations at ten more castle mounds across Britain. In other news... A painting previously valued at just £20 has now been reassessed as an original by the Italian Renaissance artist Raphael, worth more than £20 million. Art historian Dr Grosvenor rediscovered the painting in the collection of Haddow House in Aberdeenshire, run by the National Trust for Scotland. Depicting a Madonna, the painting, called The Virgin, is thought to date from between 1505 and 1510. Covered over with layers of varnish and dirt, it was previously attributed to a minor Italian artist and in 1899 was valued at just £20, around £2,000 today. Grosvenor uncovered it while visiting Haddow House for a new BBC4 series, Britain's Lost Masterpieces. He told The Guardian, I thought, crikey, that looks like a Raphael. Being an anorak, I go round houses like this with binoculars and torches. If I hadn't done that, I'd probably have walked right past it. If the painting is indeed confirmed to be a Raphael, it would be the only work by the artist in Scotland's public collection. Its value on the art market would be around £20 million.
2: Now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our History Weekend events, taking place in Winchester from the 7th to the 9th of October, and York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Dan and Peter Snow, Susanna Lipscomb, Anthony Beaver and many more. Our Winchester event is almost upon us, so do check out the website historyweekend.com for more details and tickets. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time for more from the world of history.
5: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.